What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we've got a pretty different type of episode on Gear 30, and it's a really interesting one. Luke Kappa is joining me on this edition of what we are calling Gear Therapy, and our patient, I guess you'd say, is Jason Verlindi, who is a Blister member and the publisher of the guitar magazine Fretboard Journal. And actually, today's episode was Jason's idea. So we'll explain more of what's going on here in just a minute. But this one is, as I said, a bit of a departure from our normal Gear 30 programming. But we think you're going to enjoy this one. And once you get done listening to the episode, if you are an active Blister member and you think you'd like to appear on a future episode of Gear Therapy, well, just send us an email. Let us know a few of the questions you have. And maybe we'll start doing some more Gear 30 therapy sessions. I don't know. Let's see how this goes. This episode of Gear 30 is presented by one of our favorite apps and one of our most used apps in the world, OpenSnow. OpenSnow is your one-stop shop for all of the essential weather tools. You can view 10-day weather forecasts for any location on Earth, you can read expert local analysis from the OpenSnope team of local forecasters. You can track active fires with perimeter, hotspot, and smoke forecast maps. You can avoid lightning with live and forecast radar. You can compare recent conditions and forecasts at your favorite locations and much more. And even better, if you visit opensnow.com, you can upgrade to all access using the discount code BLISTER23 at checkout to save 50% off your first year. That's BLISTER23 at opensnow.com. And now, let's do a little bit of gear therapy with Luke Kappa and... Jason Verlindi. Oh, and I should also say, you can catch an entire crafted podcast episode that I did with Jason, where we get into the history and the current state of guitar making, and that was really quite a masterclass on that whole subject. You can find that over on our Blister Crafted podcast. But right now, it's time to take Jason out of his area of expertise and ask a number of pretty basic questions sometimes, a lot of good questions, and I suspect a lot of questions that you yourself might be asking and wondering about. And so with that, here we go. All right, well, I am very happy to be here with Jason and Luke for this edition of Gear Therapy. Um, Jason, this whole thing was your idea. Yeah. And I'm not sure that you knew that I would then be like, well, that's a good idea. You're our first guest. You're, the, you're our first crack at this gear therapy thing. Talk a little bit about why 
you reached out to say that you thought this would be an interesting idea. Well, I've been a Blister member for years, and I consider myself a pretty rabid skier. And even friends turn to me for gear advice, which is the irony of this whole thing. Friends who are less <laughs> interested in gear or don't have a Blister membership. But I hung out with you closing weekend uh, in Crested Butte, and we had a beer mm -hmm. or two. And then I was just brimming with enthusiasm and ideas and like feeling like I'm having the greatest. It was a powder closing weekend. It was incredible. Yeah. Uh, and so then I started uh, sending you ideas and I didn't know that any of the ideas would backfire directly on me, but basically, <laughs> and you've, you've kept the text. I did not. Uh, basically the idea was gear therapy, you talking to us common non-industry, non-professional skiing <laughs> civilians, us walking through our quiver and or complaints and or questions, because sometimes I'll read Blister and I love Blister. And I, you know, I, I, I it sits <laughs> right you. next to my bookshelf. You do an incredible <laughs> job, but sometimes I just assume stuff like, oh yeah, that's a... Uh, that's a, a, a directional charger. And I'm like, do I know what that even means? I'm just nodding my head like I know all this shit. And, uh, and so, yeah, the, the idea for what I, in my text, dashed off as gear therapy was just kind of you walking us civilians through, through the process of gear and like how to figure out what, what we should have versus what we already have. Hmm. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, Luke can attest to this. You know, we have blister members writing us day in and day out at all times of day or night, given that we have a lot of blister members in Europe and the Southern Hemisphere and that kind of thing. And, you know, a lot of emails start with, like, I have done nothing but pour over your ski reviews or bike reviews or running shoe reviews you know, for the last two weeks, but I'm now just kind of all caught up and tangled up and confused a bit. And it's kind of like, please just like straighten me out now. And um, that's how many of the those emails start. And that's totally fine and appropriate. But I think one of the things that's really interesting to me, Jason, is you've been a bit sort of sheepish about this. And you're like, I, like, hence the gear therapy, your excellent title. But as I reflect on this, first of all, as I just said, many, many, many Blister members are reaching out and I think are going to very much resonate with what you just said, Jason. Like, we're making assumptions. Or am I really on track with what's happening here? But the other thing that I find fascinating is I think this is true of any new activity, or, or maybe not even a new activity, just stuff that we've participated in for a long time, right? Um, you know, Jason, we did an episode of, of on the Crafted podcast. We were talking about guitar making and the history of guitars. Um, that was a pretty new world to me. But if I, you know, all these conversations we've done about whiskey and wine, it's like I've been drinking whiskey and wine for a lot of years. And I still definitely don't know how to talk about all of these things. And so, I think to just start this, I think it's worth acknowledging that many of us um, find ourselves in a position where 
we might not even know really how to even ask the proper questions. And then maybe you folks end up either sending me a text or sending us an email asking us to get straightened out, you know, through a form of therapy. Luke, Luke, what do, what do you think of that, Luke, given what I've just said? Yeah, I think that makes sense. And uh, I think for anyone who is either new to an activity or a field or whatever, or they're just trying to get more involved or learn more about it, it's applicable to just about any of that. But um, as far as this conversation, I think hopefully we'll also maybe address some common questions or misconceptions as well as kind of give people an idea of, yeah, how those member questions typically play out over email. This will be uh, a, a variation on that essentially because, yeah, we, we answer these sort of questions all the time, but I think it will be, will be helpful to everyone to kind of go through that process with us, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about the wine thing earlier today because uh, somebody was asking me, what the heck are you doing today? And I was trying to explain to them why I was going to be on a ski podcast. And they're like, what do you do? I know you ski, but why, why are you worthy? <laughs> uh, when you go, when you are at a vineyard and some wine sommelier or anyone says, you know, oh, taste the charcoal or taste the pencil shavings or whatever, you can take a sip and sure enough, you can wire your brain to, to pick up on that. It gets really hard with skis because so many of us don't have demo days or don't have real demo days, especially yeah. with the breadth of like what you guys cover or what's at the Blister Summit. So mm -hmm. we're kind of like just daydreaming about, oh, well, it's kind of like this one ski that I did recognize referenced, but a little different. And it's just harder to, it's harder to visualize in our minds. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And yeah, it's much easier to go to a wine tasting or even buy, right, over the course of a month or two, a few different wines that have been recommended or you're just like, I'm going to buy six wines that are $12 or less and see if I like any of them or hate some of them or whatever. And it's a, it's a bigger commitment when it comes to all these skis and ski boots and, and the like. Um, and by the way, it's probably even a bigger problem in the whole mountain bike world, right? Where these things are now 10 times the cost of a pair of skis. You know, that's why we often say like, before somebody goes and drops a bunch of money on a ski and or ski boots or whatever, become a Blister member and email us. But my Lord, on the mountain bike side, that is a whole other level of commitment. and. You know, I think our team on the mountain bike side, they are so good at helping link people up with, with the right equipment. Um, not to turn this into an advertisement for the Blister membership, but I just think that's just facts. Like we're just talking facts right now. And, um, you know, and back to your point, because it's hard to get on a bunch of bikes or into a bunch of different running shoes or on a bunch of skis, right? Um, so that, that kind of gets us here, but it also maybe explains why so many people probably resonate with what you've already said, Jason, in terms of the like, I'm, I'm not sure I even know or that I'm in a position to know what is getting talked about sometimes in terms of these differences. Yeah. So 
yeah. with that said, let the let the session begin. Um, what's the uh, where where should this therapy session begin, Jason? Well, I was born in Sacramento, California. No, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, for context, because nobody knows who I am. I am uh, the owner of a small business. I publish a guitar magazine and do a bunch of podcasts. Skiing is my passion and has been since I, for 40 years, we'll say that. Uh, I worked at a ski shop when I was 16, 17, 18. I went to college and didn't ski. And then I moved up to the Pacific Northwest where I ski probably not as much as I'd like, but maybe more than a lot of people, like 30 to 40 days. Uh, I, I think a, a, a thing that is one talking point is that's worth mentioning is, you know, I ski in the Pacific Northwest mostly. I ski, I, I have a pass at uh, Summit at Snoqualmie, which includes Alpental, which has highly variable snow conditions, often on the wet side and and not a lot of grooming on the top half. And so that's one thing where I often read a blister review and go, you know, when there's six inches of fresh snow that they're, how they're defining that is not how I would probably define six inches of fresh snow here in Washington. It's, mm -hmm. it's a much thicker mm -hmm. consistency and, and much more exhausting. But, but yeah, so I ski a fair amount. I consider myself an advanced to expert skier, depending on where I am, but I'm not doing trick. I, you know, I'm, I got dad bod. My, my skis and my weight are like 184. <laughs> I'm, I'm five foot nine. I uh, have been known to chase my kid around and my kid's kind of less interested in skiing than he was when he was younger. So I'm kind of on my own or with friends. But yeah, I, I've over the years, as I'm sure a lot of listeners to this can relate, like you cobble together, you know, your skis that, you know, some of which are probably five plus seasons old. They haven't had a core shot, so you hold on to them. And then you fill your, in my case, very tiny quiver out with other things on the left or right of that. And then before you know it, you, here you are on the Blister Gear 30 podcast going, looking at your ski collection going like, I'm not even sure if any of this was the right decision. It just sort of happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, so great background. So let's, <laughs> let's kind of dive in. So you just, let's talk about the quiver. Like someone will often write and say, hey, I'm looking for a new pair of skis and they'll maybe give a bit of a description. Well, one of the things that we then do is ask like, well, what have you been skiing on? And so we'll ask you to talk about sort of what you own or like, unless you just aren't skiing some of those things at all, maybe, but I don't know, maybe you can tell us about those too, but talk a little bit about, do you love them? Are there certain things you don't? like and not that we have to have that information but you've already like you're skiing on some stuff so let's go to what you are currently liking about your quiver or not liking about some of the stuff in your quiver okay this is so embarrassing i can't believe i'm doing this this is like going to a therapist uh okay so i i i you guys are great at never disparaging for the most part, brands or skis. But when I told you what one of the two pairs of skis I ski the most, your eyes rolled back, Jonathan. <laughs> I, I ski... Uh, uh, the ski that's been with me the longest that is still in my quiver is a pair of 184 Praxis GPOs. <laughs> yep. And I've had that ski for six, seven seasons. 
I've read the blister review. I thought the blister review was a little harsh considering that, not that I know any better though. Uh, but I found that that ski detuned a heck of a lot uh, from the top. You know, I'm, I'm probably on three feet of edge uh, on the, on that ski. I, I use that ski a lot. Uh, if, if I'm going to Alpental and I know I'm going to ski hard and I know that there's going to be some mank and I know that there's going to be maybe powder, that is the ski I'm going to bring up. Um, I've, I was lucky enough through the magic of guitar connections to get invited to Baldface Lodge once through, cause Jeff Pensiero, the owner is a, a guitar nerd like me. Love you, Jeff. Everybody go to Baldface. Uh, I took that pair of skis up there and had a blast. Like that was, uh, it was actually the first time where I'm like, oh, this is how they're supposed to ski, <laughs> you know? Uh, but yeah, the, that is my, uh, <laughs> I would say that's my fat pair of skis. But ironically, Gathering Dust, having never been used but bought off the TGR gear swap, I have a pair of OG DPS Lotus 138s that I just bought for 200 bucks, thinking one day I might go back to bald face. I'll need these. I've never used those. So, so that's like a whole nother issue. That's like me having a hoarding problem. That's more therapy mm. talk. Um, the that's ski- just that the problem isn't your hoarding, the problem is. You just absolutely need to find the opportunity to go use them uh, in their uh, natural habitat. Mm-hmm. The most, the newest addition to the ski quiver, which isn't even that new anymore because there's like two models that have replaced it, is the original black gray line blades before they splintered the blade off. I love that ski. I have more fun on that ski than I've had in years. And if I just want to go hard on groomers if I just want to not go off piece that much or I know that it's not a powder day I have so much fun on those skis and and my friends have actually remarked that I look like a better skier on those skis so that is one therapy question is like what is it about that pair of skis that puts a smile on my face but also makes me feel more confident the the GPS tells me that I'm not going any faster than I would on my other skis, but something about those skis makes me love them. And then, and, and that's the quiver. I mean, I've, I've had hundred ish millimeter like Nordica enforcers and I didn't really love those skis. I just felt like they were kind of dead and, and at speed, I felt like the tips flopped a little too much. I ended up getting rid of those. Uh, I rented at Crested Butte. Black Crow's Atris, I think. Uh, yeah. And and those were, I think, loved by you guys. Um, but the shop that was rent, the only shop that was renting on the closing weekend had them in like a 176 or 178 or whatever they come in. And it was clearly a cool ski, but too short for me. So that's, that is the ski quiver. Um, the boots, I, Thank God, you know, I I had been rocking. Seattle is, despite being one of the great ski towns, like lacking some great boot fitters I've found. And it's really hard if you have problematic feet to find someone who can see you and and do it well. And and two of the guys moved on and were retired. But I just got out of Lang RC-130s, the old blue ones that were causing me. They were packed out, but I didn't know they were packed out, but they were causing me lots of pain. I just spent the most money I've ever spent on ski gear on the Atomics Hawks Ultra 130 Professional GW, the black ones. 
I love those things. And and kudos to Greg Louie at Evo. The the I think it's not I'm not embarrassing him by saying the old guy at Evo. He's like the guy who's been there the longest. Uh, he is a great boot fitter and I found him and I'm very grateful for that. So the boots feel dialed in. I'm not, I'm not selling or trading the boots. I've spent too much money on these boots already. <laughs> More than all the other skis combined, I think. <laughs> well, wait, wait. So how much, how many days do you have in the boots roughly? Uh, maybe 10. Okay. Yeah. But happy at the moment. Okay. Super happy. I mean, we can circle back to this because I've just downloaded all of my personal data to you, basically. But one of the questions I had that no expert, no YouTube video you guys have never addressed is no one's just said flat out how much of a pain in the ass zip fits are to get in on a cold parking lot at a ski resort. Because when I tried those on it at the ski sh- store, I'm like, I'm never going to do this when it's 25 degrees and I've just driven two hours to my local hill. No one talks about that. Well, so we can talk about that now or later. <laughs> Let's, uh, yeah, no, yeah. We're the therapist. Shut up. Stop talking. <laughs> um, that's, not, that's not how you've said enough. Now just sit there. Um, okay. Okay. Well, first of all, let's, let's address the zip fit issue. What shell you were trying to get zip fits into your Hawks Ultra? No, before professionals? I was trying to get them into my packed out Langs to 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 get a little a few more seasons out of them without having to pay for the Atomics and then I just bought the Atomics. Luke, do you have a theory on this? Um mostly they are not easy to get into compared to a traditional like foam liner. But uh, so this was actually my first season where I used zip fits for the majority of the time. And I it probably took me about like 10 days to start feeling like I was getting good at it. Um, And now I don't think about it anymore. The caveat is I'm putting I use them in my Alpine boots uh, most of the time and most of the time when I'm putting on my Alpine boots, they've been sitting in inside in whatever 70 degree, uh, a 70 degree room. Uh, and that definitely goes a long way. Um, I, so I think practice helps a lot. I would be curious to hear what, uh, I don't know if Kara brought hers to Antarctica this past year. Uh, but she's been, I mean, she's been, using zip fits in her touring boots for years now. And she does a lot of like big day, early morning stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I can't speak too much to the cold weather start. I know I have had some brutal mornings with other liners though, uh, in terms of trying to so cram them in. My first question is the technique you're using to, so like what you should be doing as far as I'm concerned, you, First step into your zip fit, tighten it up, then step into the shell. It, I, I frankly couldn't fathom if somebody can just like leave their zip fit liners in the shell and get into the boot that way. Um, I would frankly think if you can do that, I would be very suspicious whether your shell is too big. But Jason, are you doing it? The way that I'm describing, you're first well, putting on your liner, tightening it up, then spreading the shell open and stepping in because that is frankly super easy. To be clear, I, I was doing this at the ski store 
that carried zip fits at the time, which wasn't Evo uh, here in Seattle, thinking about buying them. And the guy actually said, before you buy these, you should see how you put these on. And and I was in a very comfortable, warm showroom at a ski store here in Seattle and struggling and going, oh, do I need to now bring a like lawn chair with me when I go to the parking lot and put my gear on to like wrestle myself into this shell? And so I hemmed and hawed about that. It's not an insignificant purchase at the end of the day. The Langs were so old and the, you know, I did want something with grip walk to kind of get up to the uh, 2020s. <laughs> so I ended up springing for the Atomics. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, Luke, we might, we've actually talked about this and we will, we will do it this fall. Just, I, we're, we'll do a video of like how to put on and take off a ski boot and we'll do a specific one with zip fits. Um, Cause I actually have watched like online videos and I don't actually agree with most of the videos that are like, this is how you do this thing. And I'm like, I, that's not what I do. And uh, so anyway, I don't know. I, I have to, I, it sounds like Kara, Luke and me are all saying we don't have issues okay. stepping into a shell with a zip bit. Okay. I think a lot of it's muscle memory too. Uh, like when I first started using mine, I one, it was just challenging. I'm also like incredibly inflexible and I would like pull a muscle or cramp up trying to put them on at first. Uh, and then I kind of figured out how, yeah, how to position the foot and then spreading the shell with your hands um, is definitely necessary uh, in some cases. And it definitely varies by boot too. Like I, I, I also have a, a pretty low instep but I'm usually in medium volume boots. So I don't like Jonathan, I think out of anyone would have the hardest time cramming them in because uh, you've got your giant instep, but not, not, not much of an issue for me, but it did take time. Again, I, this is my therapy session, but uh, it's a hypothetical because I don't even have zip fits. Are, <laughs> are some brands of boots, like let's say traditional style, just old school, non boa, whatever. I don't know. Uh, are some makers harder to get a zip fit into than others? If we're just talking like 130 boots? Short answer, yes. Um, and there's nothing specific to zip fits here. Mm -hmm. um, what this comes down to, and this is worth talking about. We've, we've talked about this, you know, on some other Gear 30 podcasts, but it's worth saying again, because I feel very strongly on this issue. Ski boot companies are in a real pickle here. Because as you've heard us talk about on various podcasts, when a typical, whatever that means, but a your air quotes average skier goes into a ski shop to buy a ski boot, they typically want something that is super easy to put on and super easy to take off. One of the ways to do this, maybe the primary way to do this, is to create a large throat on the boot. That is how you make a boot very easy to step into and step out of. The problem is it tends to make the boot ski like trash. And so what we're doing with these shells and liners, right, for anybody even a bit performance oriented, there's a reason why we tend to, you know, alpine racers, like high level skiers tend to have very tight shell fits. 
you don't want a bunch of extra room going on. And so this is a huge problem uh, because understandably for the ski boot manufacturers, they need normal people to be able to get into and out of the boots easily. And by expanding that throat, creating more space to stick your big foot into and take it out of, you're actually going to make that boot start flexing in stranger ways and frankly, skiing less well. So there is a built-in oxymoron here. Maybe that's not quite the right term, but that's there is an internal conflict with these two things, right? Skiability and ease of on-off. I can't remember which uh, boot manufacturer I was speaking with, and he was trying to sort of deny this conflict. And, you know, he's just not right. And I am here. Luke, do you have a take on this? Uh, I'm probably not the best person to ask because I, my foot, as far as going into ski boots, it's generally pretty easy. They, certain companies have uh, made some efforts to address it uh, via injecting different plastics, specifically where the overlap happens on a two-piece boot, like the boot that I ski most of the time, the Technica Mach 1. They added that uh, that softer piece of plastic over the instep uh, a couple of years ago. I I didn't test the previous version, so I can't say how much uh, that is playing a factor, but I do find those boots very easy to get it on and off. And I've seen that from a few other brands. But yeah, I think... It's like you, I don't know, you don't want a pair of gloves to be super loose uh, if you're, especially if you're like, say, ice climbing, like ice climbing gloves are super tight, really thin, uh, and they're a pain in the ass to put on. Like, it's like putting on like a, a, a vinyl, like surgeon's gloves or something like that. Like, yeah, I think there is a, a balance that's hard to strike. Yeah, and by the way, some of my favorite boots that are quite low volume, it's a very tight shell fit. If I left those in a cold car overnight, I'd actually have zero chance of being able to put those on because there's that combination of they are stiff, the coldness stiffens them up even more. And I, as I just got done saying, I don't want a boot with a big old throat, big old cuff opening because it won't ski the way I want it to. So that combination and you add cold into the mix, I'm not going to be able to put my ski boots on. I Yeah, I had uh, I had one morning with, uh, I think we met at the trailhead at like 5 a.m. or something like that because it was like mid-spring but 10 degrees when we were getting to our cars. And I had made the mistake of packing the night before and including my ski boots. I was in the atomic hawks prime xtd 130 and i don't think i've ever been closer to having like a brain aneurysm like i was working so hard to get my foot into them and and spread the shell out and yeah the, it it can be extremely extremely frustrating uh so i think whenever possible keeping your boots warm is is a good call and there's a reason that like like you look at World Cup racers, they've got it. I mean, granted, they have a team helping them out, but they've got people putting their boots in, in heaters and opening them for them. Uh, and they probably also have the tightest, most performance oriented fit 
in the world. Yeah, that that was the other thing. I mean, now I put my boots next to my car heater and just crank the vent because I'm usually driving by myself. But that was another that was another complaint about the ski industry was the the only heated boot bag that'll plug into your car that people seem to like is that Lang one. And it's almost impossible to get. Like I've I've gone to Lang dealers and they're like, yeah, they allocated one for us and it's already gone to a racer. And so there's just this funny, there's these funny things in the industry where we all kind of are experiencing the same issues, but there's just not ample solutions. But yeah, heated boot bags. There's, there's a bunch on Amazon that have like mediocre reviews, supposedly break, whatever. But the the one that from my very limited experience people liked was the the classic Lang one. And I guess only racers get that. I don't know. Stores don't seem to. It's not cheap. <laughs> I'd be curious if uh, what it what it costs for one of those like uh, the yeah. like the blankets they put over F one cars what we tires. All need to do. Yeah. Like I wonder if those are cheaper. I, yeah, new product, new company for you, Jason. Yeah, fire yeah. that up. It's just what I need. Do um, you want to talk? Should we skis? go back to your quiver? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm embarrassed. Yeah, go for it. Well, you don't be embarrassed. Um, it is a weird quiver, though. Yeah, uh, kind of a funny quiver. Um, I like it. Cu- couple things. One of the comments, Jason, you made earlier was that like in our full reviews, you said we don't often say like disparaging things. And I want to I want to talk about that. The rationale there is when we write our full reviews. Um, I think by now, if people have listened to Gear 30 or read enough of our reviews, we don't hold back that's not no one's ever really described me as that being the problem that i uh am just not direct enough but when we're publishing a review full review on the website one of the things that we really think about we literally talk to our reviewers about this is assume fifty thousand people from all around the world of all ability levels are going to read this review The job is to give every single person the information that he or she needs to try to start moving into a position of understanding like, yeah, this sounds like a product that might work well for me, or "Mm, it just doesn't sound like this is the, the product for me, right? That's what we can do in that full review and still maintain some degree of accuracy now, once we move into a one-on-one conversation, now if it's it's me, if it's me talking about my personal opinion, which was what sometimes we'll do on Gear 30, um, or if it's me talking to you, Jason, and now I know who you are and how you ski and where you ski and the rest, that's a different conversation. I don't care about 50,000 people. I'm here to make sure you are getting aligned with the gear that I think will work well for you. And that's when it's like, oh my God, that is a horrible choice for you. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's that's actually like, that's exactly how we do things. Um, and I think it's probably worth saying that because some people probably wonder. Um, but like, I I actually think, and and there are reviews out there that do this, that it almost becomes more about entertainment than actually trying to do really good consumer product information. And while I hope there is some 
you know, a, there's the occasional joke or witty comment in our reviews. The purpose of our reviews is real clear. I'm not fucking trying to entertain you. We're trying to help you figure out how to go spend 800 or a thousand or two thousand dollars. Sure. Right. And if we're talking about mountain bikes, now we're talking about seven thousand, nine thousand, eleven thousand dollars. And we still take that really seriously. Right. So that's kind of how that breaks down. And frankly, we could be more of a zinger or gotcha website. And it's like, I could just sit there and flex the writing muscles and tear apart some product and tell you exactly why I hate it. And you probably think that's pretty hilarious and all the rest. I don't actually think that's the best way to do consumer product reviews. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I also get the impression from reading Blister just that like it's an embarrassment of riches. Like, you know, the, the ski that I need the most is I'm guessing you'll tell me it's between 100 and like 106 millimeters underfoot. And there's so many good ones. And probably a dozen of them would fit the bill perfectly, but I've got this like decision paralysis going on here because I'm like, well, I, I only buy skis once in a while. Like, I, I don't want to screw this up and I don't want to. Yeah. So here we are. <laughs> no, but anyway, but, th but that's just like in yeah. case somebody wonders, like, how does it work for us or how do we think about the review process versus what happens when we are actually in the one on one kind of consultation, you know, with a blister member, that's why in person, I'm going to start rolling my eyes or something or just telling you like, <laughs> you have no business on being on that on or in that product. Got it. So, okay. But with that said, yeah, Jason asked the question, Luke, why does he click so well with the line blade? Luke? I think it's because the blade is... Well, one, it's just so different. Like you, not even that you click with it, but that it's just s feels so much more fun or engaging or exciting uh, than your other skis. That's a sentiment that has been shared by a lot of people I've talked to who have tried that ski. And I think a large part of it is because they haven't skied something like it before. Uh, aside from that, one, I mean, a lot of it comes down to the fact that it has the same radius as a slalom ski and most all mountain skis and the vast majority of powder skis have much longer radii uh, that makes them not very exciting or engaging while you're on particularly groomers and especially low angle groomers, but also the rest of the mountain too, it's like when you have a ski that is so easy to get cutting across the fall line and into a turn, you can start to change your skiing style elsewhere. Like, oh, I can actually throw in a hard carve in this spot or this transition rather than just sliding down it or sh going straight through it. Like you can all of a sudden make a lot more turns and uh, a different type of turn all over the place. I think that's huge for me. I have found myself being drawn to tighter radius skis, especially in the kind of front side and all mountain category over the years, because it makes otherwise terrain that I wouldn't find that exciting on other skis more exciting and enjoyable. And it just opens up new possibilities in terms of how I can ski it. Uh, so I think the small side cut radius is a big part. However, it's not a slalom ski. A slalom ski also has a really tight radius, but it has typically 
uh, no rocker, a lot of camber, very stiff. And you need to generally be on it all the time. And it always wants to be on edge. And it's frankly can be really exhausting <laughs> to ski. Uh, the blade is it has that tight radius. It's capable of t super tight turns, but it's also pretty soft. And so you don't have to be driving it super hard to get it into a turn. You also uh, don't need to be turning 100% of the time. It's definitely biased towards keeping it on edge and carving. But um, with the giant tip and the skinny tail not being that stiff, not being super torsionally stiff, it's also happy to just skid around when you feel like it. So it's a pretty easygoing ski. Uh, but yeah, I think I think the combination of being able to easily carve tight turns or just get it on edge kind of whatever you want while also having the option of just sliding around. I think those are the, probably the two characteristics I'd point to. That makes sense. So then the, the quandary is for a softer snow ski, but in the Pacific Northwest where snow is thick, would I want an equally soft ski for that or what what would be point me in the right direction who what ski should i be dating right now well wait a second have <laughs> you not been skiing your line blade in the pacific northwest oh i ski it everywhere i ski it in conditions that i know aren't what it was made for and and do okay with it i i think i would like something that worked a little better on like really steep stuff and really variable snow, like it's not going to be if the backside of Alpental is open and the snow is wet, like I would not take a line blade back there. I just ski the bottom half of the mountain and decide that I brought the wrong ski to the night or to the day. So, yeah, I mean, I the reason why I said I like your quiver earlier is because it's you've got like <laughs> very niche skis on either side of your daily driver and i love that because those are always my favorite kinds of skis well his lotus 138s he hasn't even skied no first off you need to ski though they're, or mounted. Need to they're ready to go whatever. i paid for the mounts they're ready to go okay they've got the storage wax on them it's just been sitting there though for three seasons i um i talked about this but i i got back on the dps lotus 138s in alaska this spring and still still a very, very big fan of those skis. Yeah, so get yourself out on those. Um, but I, I guess what we would be, and this is what we would be doing if we were doing back and forths with a, a Blister member via email. Can you, let's push a little bit on this. You said, well, at Alpental, I probably wouldn't take the line blades up top. Why? What, what is happening? in certain terrain can, and you might not be able to articulate that and that's yeah. okay. But, but let's see if you can, like what is happening up top or in steeper stuff where you feel like that blade isn't working as well and isn't as much fun as it is on the lower portion of the mountain. Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge with Alpental and, and maybe like harder terrain in the Pacific Northwest in general is like, it's pretty taxing, exhausting, like, you know, halfway down the run, I need to stop. Whereas even at Crested Butte, like I could do a run, you know, without having <laughs> let my legs rest, uh, even though they were hard runs. Uh, I think the snow, when the snow gets a little cruddy, when the snow gets a little manky, for lack of a better word, the blade just doesn't have that 
it's hard for me to find a rhythm, say that. It's hard for me to have like a flow down the mountain. I'm kind of like a few turns, resting, traversing, whatever. Um, I want I want that feeling I have in the blade on groomers, which I know is like a way easier terrain to ski. I want that. I want to feel that when I'm off piste, which I know is easier said than done. Okay, so Luke, do you want to take that? I, I've got thoughts on this, but I'll let you go first. Yeah, I think. Uh... One, it makes total sense that the blade's not your favorite in those scenarios. Like, uh, relatively soft. Like, it's not a super soft ski, but for someone of your size, a fairly soft uh, ski combined with a tight radius. Generally not super favorable in steep terrain that's covered in heavy snow. Um, It's going to want to... uh, That steepness and that heavy snow is going to basically give you more leverage on the ski already and it's just going to want to bend and cut across the fall line or fold up if you hit a dense patch of chop or crud. Um, So that makes total sense. I think that ski excels in consistent snow. doesn't need to be super soft, but um, yeah, not not like ultra heavy or really variable. Um, The tricky part is the blades are... I'd call it a unique ski. There are only a handful of skis that are I'd put in remotely the same category. And so there's not going to be in my mind, any all mountain skis that are going to feel just like it in terms, especially in terms of how it carves. Um, But there's a lot that will be more exciting in the way that the blade is, especially when you're carving it than the GPO because that's a ski with pretty long radius, pretty wide waist, uh, generally kind of the opposite of the blade. Uh, So I do think, I think there's a lot of options somewhere in the middle. Uh, Maybe you're, yeah, basically shooting for anywhere from like a 17 to 21 meter radius, maybe side cut radius, and maybe not quite as stiff as the GPO, uh, but not as short and soft as the blade. Uh, I mean, Lions Blade Optic Series is the first one that comes to mind for me. I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not 100 on that. Uh, it's one where I'd be like, if you can try it, definitely try it because those skis are also not very stiff, but they aren't as aren't nearly as niche as the blade. They've got a lot more rocker. They're wider. Uh, they're heavier. And so, like the Blade Optic 104 is uh, one of the first that comes to mind in large part because it was developed based off partially off the blade itself. Uh, but also, uh, because I think that's a good example of kind of that, that middle ground and trying to do several things well, instead of being like really good at one for, certain thing. For someone who clearly has no brand loyalty, like dash off a couple other models that I should just look for as a, like to flip through when I look through the, the buyer's guide and see whether or not it's a good fit for me. Yeah, I would say the the DPS Koala 103 might be worth looking into. It's it doesn't have a super long radius, but it's a pretty strong ski. Still has a decent amount of rocker, fairly progressive mount point around minus six. Um, my main hesitation there would be it's not all that heavy, and I think I'd probably want to go slightly heavier uh, for this sort of ski. Um, but that's one that comes to mind. Anytime we're talking about the Pacific Northwest and we're talking about 
now how to up the enjoyment level in steep terrain. Um, I will often want to start talking about ON3P. Um, one of the things they do just as a generalization is put a good amount of tip and tail rocker on their stuff. And if you're starting to get into heavier uh, coastal snow, sometimes turn into cake batter. My biggest thing is I do not want that tail getting hung up or getting stuck down in snow. Um, and I think that those elements, I think for you, Jason, looking at the kind of 184 centimeter length, so not a not a crazy long ski, and given the amount of tip and tail rockers that you're going to find on like a and the ON3P Jeffrey or or the ON3P Woodsman 102, I think that combination of a 184, but it's going to have a relatively short effective edge given the amount of tip and tail rocker. Those are skis, and I'm I'm not sure off the top of my head. I'm leaning a bit more, given your love of the line blade. I'm actually a little more tempted to tell to steer you toward the ON3P Jeffrey 102. So I think possibility that ends up feeling a bit not just too directional. The line blade is a directional ski, but that might just be not quite as playful, Jason, as your line blade so the jeffrey 102 but mounted back in kind of the minus six range is something that i would be curious for you to try hmm. um and actually this is probably why you should come to the blister summit because on3p <laughs> is going to be there and you could get on both of these things and then yeah you know there you go i'm working but on that that's a that's a brand that i think when we're starting to talk about Steep, sometimes funky snow in the Pacific Northwest. Some of those general attributes of ON3P, um, which makes sense given that they're based out of Portland, those elements play well with what I think works well in coastal snow. Luke, what are your thoughts? Uh, I remembered some more. I've been, for reference, we've been signing off on all of the buyer's guide sections. And so while I have been looking at basically every ski on the market, every day for the past three months, they all kind of jumble together in my head. But Solomon QSD 106, uh, that ski is going to be significantly more maneuverable than the blade in all sorts of manky snow. It's a bit heavier, it's more stable, won't feel as hooky, but it's still a pretty playful ski in several regards, most notably relative to the Jeffrey. The QSD 106 actually has a pretty tight side cut radius. It doesn't feel like it most of the time, I think because the tip and tails are pretty tapered, uh, but it's it's a nicer um, blend of tight carving capabilities with all mountain off piece performance than the blade. Uh, so I think that would open up some of the kind of easy carving capabilities that you're liking about the blade in a much more versatile all-mountain package. Um, I think that 181 could potentially work quite well. Uh, I think it's a rare case where, on paper, it's got one of the tighter side-cut radii in its class at uh, about 18 meters, but it definitely doesn't feel like that. 
But when you do put in the effort to really engage a shovel, it will carve tighter turns more easily than a lot of the alternatives. Any thoughts or questions on what we've said so far here, Jason? No, this is all good. This is what I wanted. Send me down a rabbit hole. I do think that, I mean, the blind blade is a pretty unique ski. And where it shines and the sensations of what it can do on a groomer, I think are pretty hard to replicate when we're going to talk about really steep technical terrain. Yeah, you're almost kind of working to opposite ends of the spectrum on that, I think. And so, like when I'm talking about my recommendations for, I feel better about my ON3P recommendations in terms of skis that I think you personally would like, Jason, in sort of the upper sections of Alpental. It is not, go- those skis are not going to feel anything like a line blade sure. when you hit groomers. So that's why, you know, that's why we have quivers, right? Totally. Uh, can I ask a random question? Yes. <laughs> During my therapy session? As, as we bring your therapy session to the end, sure. Yeah. It's your time, Jason. When I, when I see the phrase like loose and surfy, I know what you're trying to say, and I'm like, hey, I want to be loose and surfy, but my brain always immediately goes to, oh, that's going to suck on hard pack or ice. Can a ski be both loose and surfy when it needs to be, but also allow you to traverse on that steep traverse to get to the hard stuff without killing you or sending you in a tree well? Like, can you, can you have that the best of both those worlds? <laughs> You can have, you can have the the pretty good of both worlds. Um, the they definitely like, yeah, they work against each other for sure. But there are lots of skis that do a very impressive job of balancing it. I the, pretty much all that come to mind have rocker profiles where the if you look at them, if you put the skis together base to base, the rocker lines extend very deep towards the middle, but there's not much space between them. They, the way the rocker rises is very, it's a long and low slung rocker profile is how I usually phrase it. Uh, uh, some of the line skis, uh, like the blade optics, I would say are, are somewhat like that. The white dot Ultim 104 is one of the first ones that come to mind. So what that does is when your skiing base is flat, you're running on a shorter running length. And when you tip the ski over on edge, you're engaging more and more of it. Um, similar idea with, uh, it's basically what a, a side cut of, of a ski does as well. You, when you tip it on edge, you're engaging more of it. Yeah. Not all skis that are, we, we call loose. And usually we're talking about they're loose in moguls or loose in trees or loose in powder, like some specific scenario, not all of them suck on groomers and vice versa. Like, like the K2 Mindbender series, like the Mindbender 99 is a very easy ski to pivot around. Uh, it's not the loosest for sure, but it's also a phenomenal carver, uh, for what it is. So yeah, there's definitely companies I think have started to really figure that, that balance out, uh, in most cases. And I think it really, that's where it starts getting into the know thyself stuff. If you are a skier who's never hitting high angles, carving on groomers, 
then you can afford to get away with a quote unquote looser, surfier ski. But the more that somebody really is, once they hit groomers, trying to get into like traditional sort of race technique carving, that's where it's going to, you're asking bigger and bigger demands of a ski. And like to have it always, all the ways is, um, gets a bit trickier and trickier, you know? Um, but it often turns out that some people who have that really traditional, really strong high edge angle carving technique don't like to switch up once they get into off piece terrain into that more upright. Cause you, you're to get really loose and playful. You got to be upright. That's you're not, you're not driving a ski in the same way, right? Um, so that's where, again, like, it's like, no, and somebody listening is like, nope, I actually, I'm exactly what you're describing. I, you know, grew up racing. When I hit a groomer, I look like I'm racing. And then I have a very upright, kind of more modern, new school, loose and surfy style. Okay. But then we're going to need to kind of know that information, right? To get clear on how to advise um if that makes sense that makes perfect sense yeah i mean i think one of the reasons that the blade has been kind of revelatory is that it it probably reminds me of the skis i was skiing when i was 17 and trying to be like a slalom gse kind of guy back in the old days i don't know but but now you've sent me down uh, i've got i've got a little shopping list here it's exciting (laughs) (laughs) some and it would be interesting now to go back and read some of our reviews, yeah. given what we've said. And, and this is often how we'll advise folks, right? Is, okay, with that said, we've named some skis. Go read the reviews. Some, I assume, will now, some that you never considered before, you know, you'll go read about those. You might reread certain reviews and you're going to read certain things that kind of capture your interest. And that's often what we do then. You'll come back and be like, man, the more I read about, let's say it's the Solomon QST 106, I'm loving the sound of this. And that's when we might start going through a bit more specifically like, okay, but it isn't a big, heavy crud buster per se. Mm-hmm. Are, are you going to be okay living with like that element of a compromise? Um, sure. You know, those kinds of things. So. <laughs> uh as our session comes to an end i don't know the our first ever gear therapy session um was it was it useful very useful for me personally i i feel bad for you guys because now the floodgates are open <laughs> and you're going to be inundated with people who were too lazy to email you but suddenly want to be on your podcast <laughs> well, well we'll see and I, not sure if we're taking on new clients at this time. Luke, Luke, Luke is. Yeah, Luke is. No, I, I think it's good. I, I, I have a hunch. And, and dear listeners, let us know. Let us know in the comments section. Um, or if you love the episode, rate and review it and say that you want more gear therapy episodes. You know, you can do that too. I am certain that a number of people, even if they have different skiing styles, they ski in different locations. Maybe they hated the line blade when they got on it. I still have a hunch that people will find it interesting to hear you, Jason, kind of 
try to walk through some of this and articulate some of this stuff. And um, yeah, so um, I guess I guess we'll find out. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jason. Always good to always good to <laughs> talk. You. And uh, and now more than ever, you really need to come to the blister. I'm summit. coming. I promise. Okay. I'll make it happen. Okay. Well, 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 we'll see you at the summit, man. <laughs> All right. My new Solomons. <laughs> talk to you soon, Jason. All right. Bye. All right. It is now time for our crashes and close calls segment. And this week, I'm going to talk to you about two different crashes that turned out to be two different close calls. And this one is particularly interesting because our Blister Plus membership and injury insurance coverage that we care so much about, well, that is actually a partnership that we have with Spot Insurance. We created this custom policy for the Blister Plus membership with Spot. And then if and when you have a claim to file, that gets filed through Spot. And all of this is backed by Mutual of Omaha. But anyway, this last Friday, a week ago today, guess who I was mountain biking with in Crested Butte? Spot founder, Matt Randall. Matt was in town. He crashed at my place and he really wanted to go ride what is, I'm just going to say, one of the very popular mountain bike rides in Crested Butte. So we went out on Friday with Matt's friends, Henrik and Axel. Shout out to those two great guys. And I was leading the ride and I hadn't been on this particular extremely well-known ride maybe in two years, I think. But um, we were out there and went into a particular rock garden section, not a particularly gnarly rock garden section. And I don't know what happened. I took a stupid line. I stuffed a wheel. The next thing I'm doing is kind of a Lincoln loop Superman type thing over the bars. Managed to cut myself up a little bit, uh, but, you know, mostly was just thankful. Don't think I busted any ribs. My shoulder was feeling a little funny, but this is kind of one of those things where you're sort of a bit far out there and there's nothing you're really going to be able to do. So like if you can ride out, it just seemed like the right move was to ride out. But um, I was sitting there wondering if I was okay, if I was going to need to use my Blister Plus membership with the founder of Spot and our partner on this whole venture standing right there asking me if I was okay. And uh, I was, you know, pride was wounded maybe more than anything. Uh, of course, I went back up and sessioned the stupid rock garden because that was stupid. And uh, that was Friday. So then on Saturday, I was out on another ride, this time with our reviewer, Sasha Anastas. She and her husband, Simon, who's a bike reviewer for us, were in Crested Butte. Simon took their son, Rory, fishing. Sasha and I went and rode another ride that I ride all the freaking time, all the time. And the very next day, going through another rock garden, got sloppy in a line, stuffed a front wheel again, went down again. And once again, I was angry at the crappy riding that I was doing. 
and embarrassed and kind of just in shock. I couldn't believe like what is happening. I do this ride all the time. But this was another one you, you know, you kind of get up, you dust yourself off, you see if you're doing okay. Uh, we finished out the ride. I probably swore a good amount loudly just because I was pissed off. But the one thing I really managed to do this time was I hit my elbow really good. Uh, didn't think I broke anything, but did manage to put like a deep puncture through my elbow. And um, so we actually had a bit of difficulty kind of like once we were done with the ride, like just getting that bleeding to calm down. We then pretty shortly thereafter uh, went to grab dinner in town at a lovely local Crested Butte establishment. And we got through dinner and I realized, again, much to my embarrassment, I left like a pool of blood on the table where I'd been resting my elbow. and so. We're not, not going to tell you which restaurant it was because we did a very nice, clean job and requested some Clorox get brought over. And so we all think it was very healthy. So no need to you know worry about anything. But um, so yeah, two crashes, two close calls, I guess, in that I did not need to go get medical attention. If I needed any attention, it would be for my ego and I am going to try to ride less poorly going forward. But folks, this is the thing. My two crashes, these were not cool crashes. These were embarrassing crashes that are decidedly not cool to have to admit to. And yet, this is often how it goes. And this is often when you get those injuries. It's not when you're getting gnar and being rowdy and... What you don't want to have is, in addition to all that embarrassment, you don't want to get left with an expensive medical bill. And that is why you and your friends and your family members who ski and snowboard and or mountain bike or run or commute by bike or kayak or climb, you should get this Blister Plus insurance coverage. Because if and when you do need medical attention or physical therapy sessions, etc., you will be covered and you won't have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for a deductible or worse, if you don't have insurance, well, with each incident, each injury, with the Blister Plus membership, you'll get $25,000 worth of coverage going toward that injury or accident. And that is if you need to take a visit to the emergency room, if you need an ambulance ride, if you need a backcountry evaluation, all of these things will be eligible up to $25,000 worth of coverage. You can learn more about this on our website. We'll include a link in this to the show notes. But folks, again, we just want to make sure that all of you are covered. So take three minutes, check this out, ask yourself if you crashed and needed medical attention, how much would you have to pay out of pocket? And then I think you will quickly see the value of this Blister Plus injury insurance program of ours. Okay, enough on that. Finally, folks. We're going to wrap up this episode with a What We're Celebrating segment. I have in my hand this beer from New Image Brewing. It's their Ambulation beer. 
And this is actually a beer that I named. Ambulation is part of our Blister Artist series that we did in collaboration with John Fellows. So there's beautiful artwork on this. And I have to say, while there are a number of amazing New Image Brewing staple beers, this Ambulation is still one of my very favorites. And so that's what I'm having tonight. And tonight, I'm celebrating everyone in search and rescue programs anywhere around the world. And what brings this to mind is my good friend and my neighbor, Josh Eplin, was out late last night on a SAR call where someone got into some pretty heavy trouble and search and rescue members got this gentleman carried out on a stretcher uh, through some difficult mountain situations to negotiate. Josh got home real late, and I'm really proud of Josh, and I'm really proud of anybody that is helping our mountain town communities by being a member of Search and Rescue and sacrificing their evenings and nights, all hours of the day and night, to go help individuals who are in bad need of help. So here's to Search and Rescue, and here's to Josh. All right, everybody, and that then brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Jason Verlindy for the conversation and the great questions. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks, as always, to you for listening. This coming Monday over on our Blister podcast, we're going to have another edition of Reviewing the News with Mr. Cody Townsend. So I hope you have a great weekend. Get your Blister Plus membership and injury insurance. Then go out this weekend, get after it, and then we'll talk to you Monday over on our Blister podcast where we're going to review some more news with Cody. So that's the program. Take good care. Talk to you real soon.